Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Chiara. And I'm Victoria. And in this episode, we are reading uh, G.K. Chesterton's short column, I believe it is. Yes. Um, the extra- Mercifully short column. Well, it, it was uh, excellent, but, yeah. you know, for me, Snappy the amount of reading that I have to do, it was very short and it was delightful. That's good. It was humorous. And it was named The Extraordinary Cabman. Uh, yeah, I, mm. I don't really have anything more to say than, than that. Um, no, we're so, not going to end the episode there. Get ready, so. So, basically what happens is G.K. Chesterton is out to lunch with some friends of his. H.G. Wells. Hang on, well, well that's we a, come on. Yes, well, yes, we do. Oh, yeah. Yes, he's, we do. He's identified a, in another column as H.G. Wells, and then we know later on that one of them really is Bella. do you really know that, Victoria? <laughs> do you really know that? So, in all likelihood... You know, in nonsense. all likelihood, this is relevant, by the way. Yeah, yeah. in all likelihood, Chesterton's uh, lunching. Do you even know it was Chesterton? <laughs> <laughs> Stop with the day card in a minute. Okay, just wait your turn. Um, yeah. It, it, so, in all likelihood, they were the his luncheon companions were H.G. Wells, uh, Hilaire Belloc, mm-hmm. and possibly, although it hasn't never, it's never been sort of confirmed, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. So, this is like the coolest lunch ever of some of the smartest, most pithy commentators in England and some of the greatest literary figures in England at the time. And I would have loved to have been on a, fl- a fly on the wall or a fly in their soup. So be it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd want to drown. <laughs> well, but it's all those it's cool people. Surrounded by cool people. Yeah, it's a great way to go. Um, so, they're having lunch. They're having lunch and then they have a discussion. Um, about metaphysical things because that's what they all do. Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton are obvious, very uh, obviously very much ca- uh, very much religious, and the other two are very much not. Um, the other- I think, as a side note, that that's beautiful um, that yeah. they have that friendship and that they can intellectually debate amongst each other, and that it doesn't uh, lessen their respect. Yes, yes, yes. Because you don't really want someone that, like, I don't know. Agrees with you on everything all the One time. Of those, I, myself and former S- sycophants. That's what they're called. To joke about um, those those debates where both people agree with each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're really <laughs> boring. Each other in agreement. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's rather boring. Um, and um, and I have to say, I love the way that Chesterton just gently ribs and pokes fun of all. Of them, mm-hmm. like Hilaire Belloc. I think if I think I might quote this because this is just hilarious. It's very Hold on funny. One sec. So now when this argument was over, or at least it was cut short, for it will never be over, I went away with one of my companions, who in the confusion and comparative insanity of a general election had somehow become a member of parliament. He's referring to Hilaire Belloc. He's, he's, very, oh, okay. yes. and he's referring to a very funny uh, instance in English history, and I have to relay this story. It's going to be a terrible paraphrasing of the story, but Hilaire Belloc, who is... Uh, who is French, but was a naturalised English citizen mm-hmm. by this point, uh, ran for Parliament, or as a member of Parliament. Yes. And, um, you know, and it, when he was standing in front of uh, a group of uh, people from the electorate, someone shouted out and said, you know, but aren't you a papist? Like, as in... As He's if it Catholic. Was, as if it was meant was. to be um, an offensive a, thing to Which to it was at someone. that time. And it was. Um, and he said... Apparently, what he did was um, 
he got out his rosary from his from his pocket and he said, you know, these are rosary beads. And, as, you know, as much as I can, I get down and tell these beads every day. And, you know, I go to mass every every day if I can and, and this and that. And um, if that's the reason you're not going to elect me, then, you know, God preserve me from this, you know, heinous electorate or something. And just like mic drop. And apparently everyone just erupted into cheers and, you know, that's how Hilaire Belloc does it. It's pretty wow. cool. And, and he obviously got himself elected. Yeah. Um, as a result. He, he's a he's a bit of a dude. He's yeah. really cool. We he's should done. read something by him. It's just yeah. a matter of... No, we ha- we wrote the yeah. children's book. Children. Oh, cautionary yeah, we have. Of course. Sorry. It's Cautionary Tales for Children. That is Hilaire Belloc. If Bellock. someone can um, recommend one of his essays, though, that would be nice because it's actually quite hard to... Uh, yeah, he's, go through he all of them and pick one. Yeah, he um did a, he wrote a lot of history as mm, well, a yes. lot of history books, which are yeah. interesting. And yes, all sorts, of, all sorts of interesting. That's things. meant to be a good book. Um. So anyway, and then basically what happens is G.K. Chesterton, you know, then says goodbye to Belloc at the House of pa- at the Parliament House, and then goes off and then gets in a cab to take him home, and mm-hmm. has a discussion with the cabbie about where he was picked up from and therefore how long the fare is, and it was quite an extraordinary metaphysical moment for him. Well, yeah. yeah, what happens is that they dropped off Hilaire Belloc at the House of Commons, yes. and then he was he travelled like a block down the road to an office he had to visit, and the, and the cabman said, you know, looked at him wide-eyed when he gave him the fare and said, but I picked you up from Euston, which is, by the way, nowhere near that, and yes. would have demanded a much higher fare, yeah. and thus this... This relativist, metaphysical, uh, philosophical debate ensues. Um, well, not well, really. Not within, really. Within, within G.K. Chesterton's head, yes. as he, yeah. as he, uh, as he's really questioning his entire existence um, of what I picked up from Houston. I, I don't. Yeah, really. as he converses with this cabman, which may I just point out, um, as I was reading this, I thought it was like a cab. Uh, the, like a, a motor car. No, it's, no, it's, it's not. It's carriage. actually a horse a hand- and carriage. It's a handsome cab, which yeah. is still pretty typical at the time. Which I think is is just lovely because at some point he says that the cabman like pulls out his whip, whip, and I was like, why does he have a whip? And then you realise <laughs> there were ponies. Indiana Jones, the cabman. Yes. Um, yes. Take it away, Luke. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's pretty. Well, I mean, the cat, the cab, the cabbie uh, eventually realises his own mistake and apologises profusely, and as you said, Victoria gets out his whip. And heads off. And G.K. Chesterton realizes that he'd been saved in that moment from a pit of skeptical despair, imprisonment. Yes. Um, uh, and ponders whether it was there was something he wasn't like some kind of demoniac or something who'd been sent to to, to tempt him out of his realism. Um, but that yeah, he that he'd previously argued for at mm, the luncheon he'd just been at. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's pretty much it. It's Pretty much just a little discussion about um, about how metaphysics applies in real life, about how skeptics are never really skeptics. Um, <laughs> about well, it's impossible to be a true skeptic. You'd be insane. Um, I like the bit where G.K. Chesterton is like, "Are you mad or am I?" Yes, <laughs> I feel like asking that sometimes. Oh, that is, um, yeah, who exactly? Who exactly I is, have no um, idea. I know what you're saying. I have no idea who he's referring he's, to there. He, he says, "What in someone's name?" Tartarus. What yeah, is what that? Is that? Tartarus is the is the blackest pit of the underworld. Oh, oh okay. It's, it's, it's a relevant Chesterton thing to say. Yeah, no, no, no. Tartarus is like the lowest, like deepest, darkest hole in the Greek underworld where. Um, uh, where what's his name? Um, Onuros Ouro- 
Thanos, the father of the gods, was cast. That's where. That's where. I gotta start saying that. Yes. What is the name of Tataris you're talking about? Good man. Yeah, no, it was. That's where you know after Zeus like chopped up his Titan father into a million little pieces. That's where they put him in Tartarus. So, yeah. Greek mythology is awesome. We should do a Greek myth at some point. We should. We kind of. That, that might have come up if I'd thought of it for this episode. But anyway, I'm glad we're doing this. Yes. Let's um, so, get you a little bit of Greek. And also, if we're going to, before we get into analysis, paralysis, and all that stuff. Analysis, um, paralysis. I should also point out that probably one of my favorite quotes ever. <laughs> now one of Luke my is going to turn ever. into a bumper love, sticker for his I'm going to turn into a bumper sticker. When he's talking <laughs> about his discussion with, with Wells and uh, Belloc, etc. Um he says, where is it? Just start uh, from the beginning. So we, Not so the sh- actual beginning, but... No, I'll, I'll, I'll just read the whole sentence. Yeah. And he says, um, so we shouted at each other and shook the room because metaphysics is the only thoroughly emotional thing. <laughs> I'm like, that's like, you know, that's a quote right there. That's my bumper sticker. You know, metaphysics is the only thoroughly emotional thing. Anyone who's been in a philosophy class with people who, ser- who take metaphysics... Phys- Metaphysics, seriously. Yeah. Or who are doing know, a course entitled Metaphysics. Know that to be true. Yeah, because um, you either see someone who's got, like, a vein popping in their head or you've got someone, like... Crying. You know, crying, crying because in their worldview has been crumbled by someone else's theory. Cry- and-, and, and they're crying and sitting there questioning whether they're a Christmas tree or not. I think it's probably the goal of every metaphysics teacher to make sure every single one of their students has an existential crisis at some point. I think oh, it's yeah. necessary. It's because it's, it's, it's a necessary. The, yeah, it's a it's- necessary thing. Um, um, which, yeah, so... Um, we're, we're using a lot of metaphysical words here unintentionally, actually. That's just look them up, that's okay. Um, no, I'm joking. I'm, I'm oh, having okay. a bit of a <laughs> metaphysics joke, or an empiricism joke. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, um, I guess there's a, lot, there's a lot that can be said here. In fact, there's probably about 2,500 years worth of stuff that can be said here. Well, um, this one little column. Go but, to your Kate you know, we've only got about oh, 20 minutes tops, so... Um, what, what, why one point. talk about the two different camps that... Oh, there's a lot of like different Like Cheston, well, think. yeah. Okay, so, so what Cheston would the melting probably pot of camps. be referring to, given that he's in England, um, that you would have um, the two different camps, which is his own camp, which is what we would broadly define as realism, um, very broadly... It's not the to- liter- literature genre, and not, to- and, and, and not the international relations theoretical, and and not the art um, technique either. So yes. just okay. putting it out there. Yes. Realism. There's lots of different kinds um, of realism. In the sense that uh, that the things around us are. We're talking about imp- uh, empirical it's, knowledge, or not? Empirical, it's not. It's um, not quite. It's not quite. What I'm looking for. Um, that we epistemology. Can, yeah. Um, epistemology. We're talking about epistemology oh, okay. here. Yes, how, like how we know things. But it's also epistemology. So how we know things. Between epistemology and metaphysics. But within within that, I don't actually know the exact terms, but I'm going to just use... Fumble something up. Fumble something up anyway. But you've kind of got this sense of realism, that the things around us are... These are not the only two camps. So these are the two camps here. That the things around us are really real, that they really exist, and that our and senses, our are, senses capable, to- are capable of, able, of being able to discern truth. Uh, and then you would have kind of on the other end, you would have uh, scepticism, um, which would hold that we don't, we can't necessarily trust our senses um, and that we don't know things are real. Now, this is most famously, I guess, brought out by um, 
uh, within the meditations of Rene Descartes. Mm. I uh, think, therefore, I am. For example, yeah. Mm. So which, his, which was the fruit of the which was the fruit of his radical skepticism. Yeah, and stripping and so back have, all the. Yeah, he he goes through in his meditations this idea that he doesn't know for certain that the things around him are really are really real. He can't know that. So, for example, if he he was to um to wake up one morning and be incredibly frustrated. And because he had a bad dream and he could have sworn that the dream that he had was real, um, but he knows it's not because he's woken up up from the dream. But does he? How does he know he's not really in a dream now? It's like Inception a bit. Um, How does he know he's not in a dream now? Because when he was in the dream, he thought that was real. And then he's woken up. Well, hang on a second. How do I now know that I'm not actually just in another dream or something like that? And so he goes through this kind of, as you said, Kiara, this kind of stripping back. Um, well, hang on a second, you know, how do I know what is really real? Because G.K. Chesterton uses this example of, like, his green nose. He doesn't know what greenness is. Well, like, how do I know the green, the colour green that I'm looking at... Is actually uh, green. Is actually is the same thing that everyone else sees. Mm. How do I know that other people actually exist? How do I know... Um, so, you start stripping back further. Okay, okay. Well, things like, say, uh, the rules of arithmetic... Or actually, not arithmetic. Um, the rules of um, of algebra, for example, um, they seem like they would have to be real. It's necessary that two plus two has to equal four. In no matter what universe you could possibly be in, two plus two will always equal four. Well, hang on a second. Maybe there's some evil demon that's tricking me into thinking that that's real, but it's not really real. And this evil demon is just well. Now we're getting into Descartes' dualism. Or mad scientist is is tricking me into thinking that. Anyway, he strips all the way back and ends up uh, at what's called the, the cogito. Um, the cogito. Yes. The, um, they always pronounced it cogito when oh, I was in. Anyway, cogito. I don't know. It's probably the ecclesial versus classical Latin yeah. thing. Um, which is this, I, I think, I think therefore. Cogito ergo sum. I, yes, I think therefore I am. I am. And so the, the thinking, uh, the res cogitans, the thinking thing is the only thing that he can really say is really real. Because it then it then forms this paradox that um, the evil demon can trick me about everything, but there's a me that he's tricking, the thinking thing that he's tricking, and that I definitely know is real. Because even with all other things gone, that thing has to exist. I think, therefore, I am, mm. and he builds it up from there. Mind you, there's been 500 years since then of arguing about this whole process that he's gone through, whether um, the building up that he does from there is actually proper, whether the stripping back is actually proper, all this kind of thing. Probably, again, most famous following on from this in the camp of empiricism would be David Hume, Mm. um, who was a Scottish fellow, which is why I brought him up, which is why I was saying because they're in Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he kind of has this sort of mm, somewhat middle ground view, which is called um, mitigated Uh scepticism, which is basically exactly what I've said there, that everything we know, well, we don't actually know anything, but we do know that there's this sense of idea of cause. He kind of destroys causation. Well, he doesn't really destroy causation, but thinks that he destroys causation um, and ends up at this point where... There is a type of causation, but it, it's only in the sense that we make theories about the world, I think. Anyone who's actually a Hume scholar on this can correct us. definitely correct me um, on this because I only spent a semester on it. Um, a very, very hard semester. And this is why, and this is why <laughs> I guess we have this situation today and in, in, in G.K. Chesterton's time um, where you have this idea that science 
is really the only way that we can know things about the world because we can't really say anything metaphysical about the world because we can't know anything really. And so all we have to play is with is this kind of fantasy world that is the malleable things around us. And so we can't definitely say that things are true except in a scientific sense or in terms of um, uh, mathematical truths, um, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Mm. Hume defends that. But everything else is up for grabs. Hence why Hume famously says that anything in metaphysics committed to the flames because because it's just all conjecture and we can't possibly know anything about it. Mm. So, with that really, really long spiel that I'm probably going to cut down a little bit of, um, we get to this point of scepticism, which, which is, is something that I think has very much damaged contemporary thought. I didn't use the word modern. Uh, contemporary thought. And it's this sense that the world, <laughs> borrowing from different people, um, because, for example, David Hume completely thought that dualism was stupid. Fair um, Descartes brought up the whole dualism. I mean, Plato had it, but not in a different way. Descartes, I guess, is very much the origin of the kind of dualism that we have today that sort of just sits in our culture that no one really observes that well. And that is that there's the real me, which is this kind of morphy amorphous thing, thing that's within you. Um, and then you have like the fleshy stuff that's everything else that can be changed at will because that's not really me anyway. Um, that's sort of one of the practical things that scepticism has brought us in the modern world. Um, I guess another thing that it's brought us—it's well, just is- a divorce from this. It's the divorce from this. The divorce of the self from the created reality of the self, if that makes it from the material reality. It's a, di- it's a, divo- it's a you know, it's like an arbitrary you, splitting the- off of one's um, yes. mental. Is functions. this the, the meat bag? Yes, thingo? this is the meat bag thingo. You've got, you've got oh, that annoys the, me uh, so much because when you went because it's not it's it's unfair, I think, to Descartes and it's uh, to 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 Neoplatonism of, in general as well. Uh, of course, especially to Neoplatonism, um, to kind of say that the modern. The, the contemporary conceptions in pop culture of this mm. are something that those people would have. They would have gone, ooh, no, stop, stupid. what are you doing? Um, um, but it's, I guess, the, lo- the, the kind of logical conclusions within the culture that we make from okay. them. Um, but dualism in itself just, just doesn't seem to make much sense because when someone punches someone else, they never say, oh, you've hurt my body. They say, you've hurt me. People naturally know that you are body and soul, yeah. I reckon. Or at least this, it's ingrained within the list. Skeptic would come back at that, though, and say, well, you're just wrong. What, um, thanks? They would say, <laughs> no, 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 but they would say, like, well, who says that, you know, you could have just had that culturally implanted within you to say you've hurt me. Well, that's the point um, I made, that it's at least is, ingrained in the language, which has significance in itself, and we should think about that. Yeah. Point is, you, we can move tr- on. Trust me, Victoria, you are okay. actually hitting upon points. <laughs> I'm sure, like, someone no. like, say, Wit- Wittgenstein would probably have said you've got an absolutely true point there. Mm. Yeah. Um, like I said, 500 years of arguing about this has been has been going on. Um, I guess the the interesting thing that Chesterton's article points out about this with his dialogue with the with the cabman is that at the end of the day, someone was actually wrong. Mm, but they this. were both but quite they were both, adamant. That they, they were both quite adamant. And the problem... And they were both of, honest as well. Mm. One, was of, no- one of the interesting critiques that I guess contemporary Thomism has 
of um, of this kind of radical skepticism, um, and even the mitigated skepticism of Hume, is that it starts from the wrong point. It starts from this point of if there was something wrong with me, which is that I'm drunk, I'm deluded, I'm asleep, I'm in a coma, um, I wouldn't be able to tell if reality was actually reality. So, therefore, I don't know if reality is actually reality. And what the contemporary Thomists would say about that is that they're getting it the wrong way around. They're using something that's deformed, a deformed experience, and using it to undercut real experiences and calling those real experiences into question. An analogy for this that they would say is that it's a bit like saying that um, taking a person who's insane and saying that, well, there's an insane person, therefore, rationality is at at the lowest common denominator what that insane person is. But that's a deformed rationality. That's not rationality at all. That's a deformed rationality. And so, in the same way, this the sense, sensory perception, using a deformed sensory perception as the lowest common denominator basis of our judgment of reality is a ridiculous starting point to have mm. for epistemology. Yeah. Um, and that's, and ultimately, and ultimately, and ultimately, like radical skepticism just ultimately falls down because how do you you have to be skeptical of your skepticism itself because it's just and that's where Hume picks up on that's why this critique yeah which is why no one's no one can possibly consistently be a radical radical skeptic skeptic. because they wouldn't get up in the morning yeah it's it's ridiculous and that's that's where his mitigated skepticism yeah his mitigated skepticism starts coming all right yeah Yeah. so you know you got but what gk chesterton getting back to the Back, back to the to point. The Chesterton and Hume, they're... Um, Chesterton and Hume. That's actually quite funny. Um, Chesterton and the cabman, their, um, their discussion with each other points out is, as I said, this sense of... Um, that scepticism is a real thing that I guess we have to take stock of. John Paul, St. John Paul II is thankful to, to Descartes for, for introducing this idea that we can't simply take for granted these things. However as I say, the contemporary Thomas point out, is that the modern project has put the cart before the horse Mm. and basically said that if we start from scepticism, we're completely missing out the obvious fact that reality is there and that we're not looking to perfection and using perfection and looking at everything else through that lens Rather than rather than we're starting from deformity and assuming in a kind of weird sense that that's perfection, and then basing everything else as a kind of arbitrary, well that's weird. On top of that, um, so in the sense of skepticism, that our sensory perceptions may fail, and therefore we can't really say that they're that anything actually that that they're not failing all the time. Mm. Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, and it's, it's one of those. It's one of those it's things. Looking at it the wrong way around, and this is different from the more conventional use of the word skeptical as well, because there are a lot of things that you should actually be skeptical of. Like if someone says that wheatgrass juice is the ultimate cure all that will cure everything, then you should probably be a little bit skeptical <laughs> of that my claim. Voice at the moment? Yeah, no, um, it won't cure your voice. Won't do anything um, other than give uh, you a sugary hit. 
Um, <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, like, so there are things that you should, there are things in this world that you should be skeptical and of, but necess- that doesn't necessarily mean that you should be radically except- skeptical of all material existence and your ability to perceive it. Mm. Full exactly. stop. Like that's the. It's important as an intellectual being to have. The, the faculties of skepticism, for instance. Because um, it's part of your reasoning as it's, well. It's part of your reasoning, your God-given reasoning. But it's also like, for instance, in the case of converts, it is a very, very useful tool when you're coming into the faith because there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there and you need to be uh, prudent with what you accept and what you discard as you know folly. And that's, but that's exactly that's, why. That, that goes just, that's the same to religious this people is a, this too. This is different, but this is, I guess what you're saying is that there's a different kind of skepticism there. One, on one hand, the radical skepticism of Descartes. The existential skepticism. About, the ex- yes, the yes. existential skepticism is ultimately saying that, um, that I can't trust anything. That's quite different from what you guys are talking about, which is more of a... Um, a distrust of the unknown. No. It's about, what's, it's what's about that being term, critical thinking. Yes, yes. It's, what you guys are talking about is more like critical thinking. But the so thing is, in the English language, they up. come over, they come under sometimes the same umbrella terms, which is why we need to make well, distinctions. Th- so thank you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I mean, that's look, philosophy making mm-hmm. distinctions. And, yeah, and so <laughs> another you know, bumper sticker. You know, ske- you know <laughs> uh, skepticism in the sense of is that true? Is a healthy, important part of your critical faculties and your ability to reason so we're not talking about that kind of skepticism that's a good skepticism that's a, that's that's a that's a diff that's different to what it's we're talking about in the it's also it's ex- a valid use of your, not reasoning. A denial of your reasoning and it's not denying is- your reasoning so you know we're not bagging on skepticism in general as most people understand it yes we're I'm bagging on we're bagging up. We're bagging out. Um, you know, we're we're giving oh. grief the the existential <laughs> skepticism that Descartes, um, you know, freaks out about. Okay, I'm going to quote something, and this yes. is like, for instance, this the type of skepticism myself and Kiara are talking about. I would say is an exciting process because when you ask is something true, well, what's to come after that? Once you realise it is through your reason and this and that is pursuing it. Mm. Okay, and so this reminds me of this wonderful quote, and you would have seen this flying around the internet. People love it. Um, <clears throat> sorry, so let me just try and find the quote. And the difference between us was very deep. This is him and his friends, because it was a difference as to the object of the whole thing called broad-mindedness or the opening of the intellect. For my friend said that he opened his intellect as the sun opens his fans, that the fans of a palm tree, opening for opening's sake, opening infinitely forever. But I said that it, I opened my intellect as an I opened my mouth in order to shut it again on something solid. I was doing it at the moment, and as I truly pointed out, it would look uncommonly silly if I went on opening my mouth infinitely, forever and ever. Mm. And so that's the next step after asking or questioning is something true, closing it on the truth and defending that, you know, it's until an, you die. It's, it's an interesting um, – I think this is a good final point to, mm. to end on. That yeah. There's an interesting, I guess, when you look at this kind of radical skepticism versus for want of a – well, I mean, this is an okay term, but it's not exclusive to a kind of Catholic line of thinking is that we have, I mean, this is very C.S. Lewis, actually, that we have the, the certain features, I guess you could say, of humanity, rationality, um, a desire for desires, uh, will, um, love. These kinds of things uh, exist for an object, 
Um, they exist for a purpose. They, exi- they exist for a purpose and they exist for an object, which is very Aristotelian. Um, they exist for for something. Um, the, skepti- the skeptic, the radical skeptic, would say that our reason is perhaps some arbitrary illusion that we have. Um, we have this illusion that we have reason, even though they're using it to get to that point. Um, they think that there's that it's kind of like, I guess you could say, um, a, an, an absurd, arbitrary thing that we're deluding ourselves with. Um, and we see this across a lot of things. You see this with um, with people like, say, the, the um, new atheists of the world saying that, you know, this kind of sense of self-awareness and that is just an arbitrary delusion. Consciousness is an arbitrary delusion that we have. Um, or you have kind of atheists who uh, have this very uh, kind of atheistic evolutionary look on the world, say that, well, humanity only reached its point or dogs or cats or whatever out of a kind of arbitrariness, a randomness. Um, None of those things are true because from a Catholic standpoint, the features of humanity, uh, the features that we have within ourselves, exist for an object. We don't have them as an arbitrary just cause, ju- you know, an accident of an accident of random mutation like yeah, that's... we have we have them for a purpose um and that ain't, that's everything that we have even things that lead us to sin have a proper object mm. because that's what sin is sin is just it's misusing using those things that we have for the improper object yeah. whether that be um gluttony gl- yeah so so gluttony um lust pride those kinds of things start from a good point. Yeah, they all they all be- start from a desire for something, but we miss or an esteem for something. Yes, and we hit the wrong target or we mm. miss the target entirely. Mm. If that makes sense. And in the case of this, we're talking about human reason, human mm. rationality, our sensory perception. These things all exist for a purpose, for an object, and that object is truth. Objective truth. Absolutely. And that's why we use our reason to hit that truth, exactly as you say, to, to then serve that truth and continue to find out more mm. about that And truth. ironically enough, it's that Aristotelian foundation that the scientific method is based on. Exactly. Sci- the scientific method cannot exist without, without that fundamental yeah. premise that the world is reasonable and we can know it. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what you've just articulated, you know, what you've just articulated. Yeah, and yeah. that is always... Be- and so, you, so you know, radical skepticism, you know, the, the irony of Hume in that, you know, scientific... Hume's a mitigated skeptic. Yeah, he, yeah, but... Be, be, be careful where you're going, here, yeah, I know, I, yeah, 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 no, I get that. I get that. But the irony with a lot of skeptics is that they trust... With a lot of mitigated skeptics is they tend to trust sort of facts that are discerned from the scientific method, for example, or discerned from... You know, whatever you know, you see. I see. I, I encounter a lot of people who misunderstand that they don't understand the philosophical underpinnings of the scientific method. So they are as skeptical as as anything of anything outside the material world, but they don't realise that it is fundamentally metaphysics that allows you to know things like the sky is blue yeah, exactly. and things and like and yeah Sci- science science can operate in a mitigated skeptical environment it does it's partially because of hume that it does but it operates it better can't, that can't well that can't operate in a vacuum no because you need to have some kind of metaphysics to underpin all that for it to even exist in the first place um so yeah that's i guess your homework 
is um, is to find truth, which is really, I think, part of all of our all of our lives. Um, and yeah, we should definitely finish that. Yes. So um, in the next episode, we're going to look at a poem by um, Gerard Gerard Manley Hopkins. We're not yeah, sure we which one. We haven't decided yet. the poem, yeah. yet, but we'll do that. So um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. That was an episode of Catholic Spree from Cradio.org.au. 